This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... Two-thirds of the 127 top UN posts are held by men. It's really offensive in a way that an organization that's supposed to be focused on trying to make the world more equal and trying to right inequities around the world is, is perpetuating them over and over again. At a time when the UK is cutting its aid budgets quite disgracefully, what is their claim to taking a global leadership position on humanitarian assistance? Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. We're going to look at the very top of the United Nations today. Here's our Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. Today, as Secretary General of the United Nations, I see one overwhelming injustice across the globe, an abuse that is crying out for attention. That is gender inequality and discrimination against women and girls. He took office in 2017 at a moment which many thought was the right one for a woman to lead the United Nations. That didn't happen. Now he's standing again. And he looks like, since he has the backing of the permanent members of the Security Council, or he appears to have that, he looks like a shoe-in. So again, we're going to be waiting another five years to see a woman lead the United Nations. So that's going to be 80 years of the UN and no woman secretary general. We're going to look at how senior UN appointments are made. Is the UN really fulfilling its stated goal of complete gender equality? And we're going to look at whether appointments can be politicized based on the background or connections of senior UN figures. I've got a really interesting panel to discuss this today. First, uh, Heather Barr of Human Rights Watch. Nick Cumming-Bruce, contributor to the New York Times based in Geneva and our regular analyst, Daniel Warner. Heather, I'm going to come to you first because you have already been quite vocal about the lack of a female secretary general. Have these recent developments with Antonio Guterres standing again, is this a source of frustration and disappointment to you? Yeah, (laughs) I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. Absolutely. Um, I think, um, you know, representation matters. And so in a way, you know, we can talk about how good or less than good um, Guterres' record is on women's rights, but, but on some level, I don't care. Um, you know, an organization that's supposed to be responsible for ensuring that every country in the world complies with the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women can't openly discriminate against women, as I think, you know, it's, it's reasonable to draw the conclusion that the UN does after 75 years of having one gender run the place. And, and just to say also, I mean, I've seen the UN sort of pushing for, for quotas and supporting um, women's representation in, uh, in specific countries and the, the time I've spent working in and with the UN. And it's it's time to clean your own house. It's time to do it at home as well. Nick, can I bring you in there? Because when we were chatting about this topic before the program itself, you said you thought Guterres had shown some commitment to, to making sure there was more diversity at the top of the UN. 
Well, I'm just struck a little bit by the number of emails one sees announcing new appointments in which he has uh, recruited women to fairly senior posts across the spectrum of, of UN portfolios. It's obviously not enough, but I think he is uh, interested in trying to achieve gender parity. I think it's a, it's a box he wants to tick, perhaps to compensate for criticisms that he faces in other areas, such as human rights. In the UN, generally, we see women leading, I think, six or seven um, organizations now, obviously, sure. led by, uh, at the top of the list, you'd have to have um, Michelle Bachelet, who I think probably sees herself as a candidate for the for Mr. Guterres's job when he eventually departs. And although it's not a UN organization, it's it's significant. We've got uh, Dr. Ngozi leading the WTO, who's a pretty formidable character, and uh, Winnie B. and Yuma at um, UNAIDS. These are, are quite tough, and they're not um, just knee-jerk token appointments. These are people who are more than filling their jobs. Danny, what do you think? I mean, Nick's mentioning there Michelle Bachelet's maybe waiting in the wings. Is that is that the game that's going on then? Guterres, who'll be, if he is reappointed for this second term, he'll be 76 when he finishes. Is that the game? Keep the seat warm until Michelle Bachelet is ready. Well, historically, uh, there's only been one incumbent who was not voted again to be the Secretary General, and that's Boutros Boutros Ghali. Uh, and the reason he didn't have a second term was that one of the members of the Permanent Five, the United States, didn't want him to come there. So there is a history of the incumbents being elected again. And I do point out that the last election, when Guterres was chosen, was more democratic than ever before. There was an organization of 750 civil society groups started something called One for Seven Billion, and there were nine candidates, seven of which were women, uh, and there were transparent public hearings, etc. This time, it seems to be an assumption, as you said, Imogen, that Gutierrez will be reelected. He is not in trouble with any members of the Permanent Five. Uh, whether there can be a serious woman candidate this time, I doubt it. Well, there is actually a woman standing. My name is Aurora Akanksha. We deserve a UN that leads progress. That is why I am running for the Secretary General of the United Nations. Aurora Akanshka, at the grand old age of 34, she works for UNDP, but that, I think, is the extent of her UN experience. Heather is this a, a useful candidacy? I mean, she's she's Canadian. It seems Canada will not be supporting her. I think it's I think it's fantastic. You know, I, I mean, I I think we're in an interesting moment in history. I think that um, lots of different things are happening. We're all incredibly worried about climate change. We're all um, going through the COVID nineteen pandemic. We've seen the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that there's a young generation coming up that's really fed up with a lot of the ways that we older people have been running things. And I think that Aurora Kanksha is a, is a symptom of that. And I'm, I'm completely in favor of it. And, and I think she genuinely wants the job and whether she has any realistic chance of getting it or not, she's certainly driven a discussion that we needed to have that nobody else had stepped forward to, to push. So I'm cheering her on all the way. <laughs> You see, it's funny, as the, as the other woman on this panel, I actually feel uh, quite different from that. I, I find it frustrating that if we have a, a woman candidate, 
the only one so far, and it probably will be the only one, it's somebody who is viewed as too young and lacking in experience and not a serious candidate. Like a token. But I don't. I don't think she's. I would. I don't think she's doing damage. Sorry to interrupt you, but I don't think she's doing any damage to to women by doing this. I think. I think nobody else was going to come forward for all the reasons we've just discussed about the fact that Gutierrez has it completely in the bag. So it's her or nobody. You know, you're sort of more seasoned people like a Bachelet or whoever. They're not. They're not going to do it. And so, so we just have no women running at all. And and so yeah. So I, I don't think she's undermining the cause. Danny, you had your hand up there. Yeah, I, I think Heather's point is really interesting. The selection of the Secretary General is done in the Security Council and voted on by the General Assembly. It means states are the ones who are in charge. And Imogen's point was, was the right one. Canada has not supported her. So for the moment, Heather, it's impossible for anyone from civil society, not backed by a country, to be a serious candidate. Yeah, and I would I'd say it's also a little disappointing that you know they can't find a, a more heavyweight candidate. You know, a woman who's done five years of what auditing at the UNDP to lead you know the world's most significant multilateral institution. It it just doesn't add up to a, a credible candidacy. And when you look at the heavyweights who were around, you know, for the 2016 race. I take, you know, Heather's point, it's quite nice to have a younger face and to have a, a fresher sort of perspective coming into the race. But you kind of need someone who's got slightly sharper spurs and more experience to, to, to make the case effectively. So, I, Heather, what do you well, think? Well, I mean, there's a group that have been organizing to actually try to kind of, um, you know, look for candidates. I mean, Aurora Akanksha, as far as I can tell, wasn't sort of selected or anointed by anyone but herself which is fine too. But I, I do think there's a bit, civil society organizations, human rights organizations got off to a bit of a slow start. And I think that's because it's just always been sort of taken for granted that secretary generals get a second term. And so maybe it didn't feel like a good use of people's time to sort of mobilize around this specific process. But but I think, I mean, you've mentioned um, one for seven billion, which my organization is part of. And there's that. And, and then I think other efforts as well to sort of try and make the UN processes be a bit less like anointments, you know? Let's move away from the specific issue of when, if ever, we're going to get a woman UN Secretary General and look a little bit more then at Antonio Guterres's commitment to gender equality within the UN, because he talks a lot about it. Even as women have played critical roles during the pandemic, we have seen a rollback in hard-won advances in women's rights. The regression harms women and girls above all, but it also harms everyone and all our work for peace and prosperity. Heather, I know from talking to you that there's quite a lot of disappointment about what he's actually done. So, I mean, I was really concerned when he emerged as a lead candidate, particularly because of his um, past positions on abortion and LGBT rights. So when he was in politics in Portugal, he opposed gay marriage and opposed abortion. And, you know, to us, the right to choose whether to continue a pregnancy or not is an absolutely fundamental human right. And so to have someone at the head of the UN who doesn't support that is is really alarming. And and I, I just did a search just before this discussion to see if he's said anything um, since he became secretary general in support of the right to choose. And I was unable to find anything. 
think he hasn't been great on LGBT rights either. In terms of his record as Secretary General on women's rights more broadly, I mean, we talked before Imogen about how the International Center for Research on Women has been doing a very useful report card for him every year. He's done a bit better this year. He's gotten a B, um, but he got a C plus in 2017. So, you know, I, I appreciate that he's had some meaningful steps on, on women's rights, but it's it's not enough. He could certainly do a lot better. Danny, I saw you wanting to come in there. Well, I would add, Heather, that I think on other major issues, he hasn't done that well either. But the lesson from history is, if you want to be reelected, be quiet. Uh, and the Butruscali example of someone who was more dynamic uh, proves that point. So I think Gutierrez, if he gets elected the second time, we'll see what he does. But certainly he has not been the most dynamic leader that the UN has seen in its history. I did hear once that at whichever UN Secretary General, when Margaret Thatcher was in power, she uh, she backed his re-election by saying, yes, he didn't cause us any trouble the first time. Nick, did you want to come in there? Because you have your, your views of Guterres and a certain amount of underwhelming. Well, he, he talks a good talk. And we saw this when he was High Commissioner for um, Refugees. It was noticeable that he, you know, he, he hits a lot of the right buttons in terms of the general message. But he was scrupulous in avoiding stepping on the toes of governments and particularly big governments. And I think we have seen that replicated uh, in his tenure as UN Secretary General. And I think the issue on which uh, sitting in Geneva one sees particularly um, a lot of caution has been the issue of human rights. It was apparent when Zaid was the High Commissioner and the relationship between them was clearly extremely fraught by the end of, of, of Zaid's tenure, precisely because Zaid was a very outspoken advocate for human rights in, in a way that um, Guterres finds difficult to contain and to and to deal with. Uh, with Michel Bachelet, he's found someone who's much more closely aligned, and he's quite happy to. We saw, for example, his recent statement uh, on China. He, he hasn't taken China on in relation, for example, to the situation in Xinjiang. What he has done is basically put uh, Michel Bachelet out there by continuing to draw attention to the negotiations on her supposed trip there, which I think is beginning to be an extraordinarily fanciful exercise. Well, I have to say, and I, th I think, Nick, you would probably agree with me, I really miss Said, actually, as a journalist and trying to report on, on the UN's human rights efforts. Zaid... But he was not running for re-election, Imogen. no. But well, he, he might have done originally, and then I think it was made clear to him it wasn't going to happen. Isn't that the one, right? One thing you can say on, on Guterres's sort of defense is that to lead a multilateral institution like the UN in the times of Trump would be challenging to anyone. And um, to navigate the financial difficulties that the UN is going through, I, I think, deserves a, a very sympathetic consideration. I, I just... I just wanted to chime in for a minute and say that, um, you know, we're talking about women's rights today, but, um, you know, in 2019, the executive director of my organization, Human Rights Watch, wrote um, an op-ed in the Washington Post, really taking Guterres to, to task sort of across lots of issues and, and for, for really a, a weak approach to human rights. And that's something that we would not do lightly at all. So so his report card from us on, on human rights more generally is perhaps less than a C plus. Okay, I'm going to move the discussion on 
slightly, and Danny, I will bring you in. I see you have your hand up, but I, I want to move the discussion on slightly because we were talking about the Secretary General and whether he's as strong as we would like him to be on particular issues. We do always come back, don't we, to the fact that the UN is really only as strong as its member states. Many of them are more powerful than others. And to come back again to the issue of appointees to senior UN positions, because we're looking now for somebody to fill the shoes of Mark Lowcock, the head of OCHA, UN's uh, Emergency Humanitarian Relief. The UN's humanitarian chief, Mark Lowcock, has been generally praised by insiders for his hard work and his ability to make the case for some of the most disadvantaged people on earth. The consequences in humanitarian terms would be catastrophic. His decision to resign though puts the spotlight on how some top jobs at the UN are awarded. Nick, let me ask you first. Traditionally, this is a British post and it looks like it's going to be a British candidate again. Well, I think that's almost more contentious in a way than the gender issue um, at a time when the UK is cutting its aid budgets quite disgracefully. What is their claim to taking a global leadership position uh, on humanitarian assistance? But if the UK does keep its sort of colonial hold on this job, I, I haven't seen a, a particularly dazzling sort of um, sheet of, of potential appointees. I mean, it, it's, it's extremely underwhelming at this stage. Well, top of the list is a man, a white British middle-aged man to replace, I mean, with all respect to Mark Lowcock, also a white middle-aged <laughs> British man. Danny, um, sorry, a white middle-aged American man, you can come in now, I see. Well, well <laughs> if I'm middle-aged, thank you, Imogen. Um, the point I would make on this issue is one of quotas. In other words, even the Secretary General is regionally supposed to be one time it's Latin America, one time it's Europe, one time it's Asia. And when we get to these other postings, there seem to be favorite countries or favorite regions. So beside the issue of male or female, there's the question of which country. And obviously those countries that give the most money are those that get prioritized. And there is a tradition that country X has this position, country Y has another one. Uh, whether it's a question of merit or not, it's not the highest thing on the radar screen. Well, that's true, isn't it? I mean, the World Food Programme uh, head always goes to the United States. UNICEF um, too. Heather, let me bring you in there because this is a bit of a, it is this kind of throwback to colonialism almost. I think that's, I think that's a wonderful word um, that, that you've used, Nick. And, and I, I've worked in this system. I actually worked at one agency when one country lost control of it and another country took over. That was the shift from the UN Office on Drugs and Crime being headed by Italians to being headed by Russians. And it's a very, very bizarre environment in which to work. You know, you see these sort of strange things where desirable headquarters positions are, you know, quite a large proportion of them are sort of reserved for, for that country's nationals, whereas less pleasant field positions, you know, might might be for people of less countries, countries that have given less money. <laughs> so I, I just think it's it's completely um yeah, it's, it should be obsolete and it, and it's really offensive in a way that an agency that is supposed to be, that an organization that's supposed to be sort of focused on trying to make the world more equal and, and 
um, trying to right inequities around the world is is perpetuating them over and over again, and, and that there's very little discussion even about why is this still happening. I mean, to me, the, the point you made, Nick, as well, about the fact that this is almost certainly going to go to a British citizen. And as you say, Britain's foreign policy right now is to cut foreign aid. We've seen the cut in aid to Yemen, the cut in aid to Syria. Um, wouldn't it be helpful, I mean, particularly head of OCHA, UN Emergency Humanitarian Relief, ahead from a part of the world, which is because we always talk about this, the the donors versus the beneficiaries, you know, somebody who can bring the beneficiary perspective. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Heather, I'd, I'd like you a former refugee to, to be the head of that agency. I'd like, you know, I, I mean, it's interesting because one of the things we hear about constantly is how these funding appeals are wildly underfunded. And that's why essential humanitarian assistance is not available and people starve to death and die as a result. Perhaps somebody who actually has had the experience of, of being a refugee, experiencing conflict, being a recipient, as, as you say, um, would, would be particularly effective at, at some of that fundraising that's so desperately needed. Yeah, I think that the, the recent head of the World Trade Organization, a Nigerian woman who has a doctorate degree from a major American university, has gotten off to a phenomenal start because she understands both sides of the problems. And she's just called this extraordinarily important meeting about seeing how the various vaccines can be properly distributed around the world because she has the perspective of someone coming from Nigeria saying, why aren't we getting the vaccines. So I think it's rare to find someone like that. But I don't, it's I don't think it's that rare. I think there are happen. lots of people like that, but uh, but they don't get a foot in the door because of racism, because of because of sexism, and because of colonialism. I mean, I'm wondering if, it, if things have almost got worse. I mean, we had in the 1990s a female head of the UN Refugee Agency. We had two director generals of, of the World Health Organization, women. Now, these, well, we have the WTO, as you pointed out there, Danny, but the big agencies are not led by women. Two thirds of the 127 top UN posts are held by men, Imogen. Two thirds. Which is in 2021, it's, 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 it, yeah, it's, 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 it's really disappointing. disappointing. Because, I mean, Heather? one of the things that's been very interesting about the pandemic is that I think that for the first time we've started to get some actual hard data on the benefits of women's leadership in the sense that there's some there's some research that shows that in countries headed by women, fewer people died during the pandemic. So, you know, feminists like me have been saying for decades that no, it's, it's not that women should be in leadership roles because we're kinder and gentler and give birth to babies and hug trees and whatever. We should, we should be in leadership roles because we're 50% of the population. But maybe it's actually more than that. Maybe, maybe it's a bit life-saving to have women in leadership roles. And, and, you know, we certainly ought to give it a whirl, you know? Well, I tell you why we should be in leadership roles, because we can think of 17 things at the same time. The kids' dentist's appointment and our six o'clock news bulletin and what we're going to make <laughs> for dinner, right there, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Nick. Yeah, I, I have to think about the kids' dentists as well. So come on, I, I take great exception to this as a sort of, uh, I, I, I think, what we're seeing across uh, a lot of the areas of, of conflict mediation, we're seeing much greater emphasis on in in the sort of the non-state 
areas of, of activating and, and the absolutely essential need to bring women to the table, to make discussions on ending conflict and, and providing a basis for endurable peace actually sustainable. Without them, it tends not to be. Can we return to Aurora Akansha's candidacy. Is this also a failure of the UN, not just the lack of visible gender equality and diversity of region at the top of the UN, but also of age? To succeed in the UN, you usually have to put in a good couple of decades before you get anywhere near a top position. I wanted to ask you, Nick, this because I know you have daughters of kind of student age. Would Aurora be somebody that your daughters would identify with, do you think, and be more interested in the UN? I mean, we know the UN has been trying in this 75th year to reach out to the younger generation. I don't think that youth automatically per se qualifies you for leadership. And uh, you need to have to bring more to the table than that. And I think my daughters would be pretty tough in examining her credentials for a job and, and not just on the basis of gender. We've got beyond that, you know. Leadership in the UN, I mean, it, it, it tends to be a reflection of, of the world of politics. How many young political leaders do we see? How many people are leading governments at the age of, of 40? And certainly how many young women? I don't think the UN is, is particularly really out of sync with the rest of the world. It will be very interesting when we get round to the next election of a secretary general. I mean, I'm assuming that Mr. Guterres keeps it. The next time we come to Latin America, which is an area that has had a multiplicity of strong female political leaders, okay, Bachelet will probably have her hat in the ring and she might well be a, a strong candidate supported by the current incumbent. But um, the continent itself, I think, is quite capable of throwing up a, a bunch of quite um, uh, strong candidates. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see what comes out of that mix. Uh, Heather and then Danny. Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say that I, I think that um, the last process and this one as well are, are, are proving to be quite galvanizing um, for people who are not happy with the way that this process is, is working and has worked for so long. And so I think one for seven billion is, is a sign of that. And I think that if you're right that Guterres is going to get a second term, which seems pretty clear, um, I, I think we'll be in for a very interesting process next time around and people will be spending some time between now and then getting ready for it. Danny. I mean, there are several qualities needed for the Secretary General. First, of course, is to get elected and chosen by the Security Council. There is a certain moral authority, but if I could add, there's a certain charisma. I mean, Sergio Vieira de Mello, when you look at the movie, the books, I mean, Sergio was a star in all senses of the word, brilliant academically, a real negotiator. And there are very few people like that. And what I would add is that there are very few people like Sergio who are willing to go into the UN system. We may see people like that of a certain age, whatever age, in the private sector, but not many of them spent their careers in the UN system as Sergio did. It doesn't appeal to those kind of personalities. Actually, we're already at half an hour. Amazingly, we could we could talk uh, for an, another half hour at least about this. But what I would like to do just to wind up is to get from all of you, since it's 99.9% clear that we are going to have another man, a white European man, in fact, the same white European man at the head of the UN 
for the next five years. What key things should he focus on? Nick, you very rightly said he had a bit of a poison chalice with Trump and a pandemic in his first term. Is he going to be able to write a, a good legacy for himself in his second term? What would you say? I think to Trump and the pandemic, one should also add a, um, a security council that is completely paralyzed by partisanship between China, Russia and, and, and everyone else. So it's it's very difficult to get to finesse good initiatives through the Security Council that he might otherwise have expected to do. And again, in his defense, some of his offsiders say he's much more outspoken on things like human rights in private meetings than we would ever see from his public positions. We have to take their word for that. And I, I don't think that people do, by and large, <laughs> particularly on the issue of human rights. So what would we like to see? He is, again, pushing out some good messages on, on climate change. And I don't think anyone would contest that, that is something where we really need to see very dramatic action in the space of the next couple of years. To the extent that he can call in his relationships with, with major governments to support that, he's been... Uh, a soft-spoken Secretary General, let's see if, if he can deliver some return for, for this soft-spoken nature and on rather non-contentious issues like climate change. And I say non-contentious in the sense that everybody uh, agrees that it's something that has to be acted on. Obviously, it's extremely contentious in terms of the specifics of what anyone's going to do. But that's one area where I think we would expect to see results. And um, I think also building up defences against another pandemic, because we do have the sense that this isn't by any means the last we're going to see in, in the coming years. Danny? Well, I think I would hope he would surprise us. Uh, not running for office again, he should be liberated. And I think if Zayed is High Commissioner for Human Rights, at the end, Zayed just said exactly how he felt. And I would wish that Gutierrez would do the same. Heather, I'm going to give the last word to you. And bearing in mind, of course, we started on the issue of gender equality at the top of the UN and a certain amount of disappointment among women, you and me included, at the kind of commitment we've seen so far. Yeah, well, thanks for giving me the last word and thanks for inviting me. Um, <laughs> I mean, the first thing I want to say is, is he has to be better on human rights across the board because women's rights are human rights, as feminists are prone to reminding people often. So he needs to do better on, on everything. If I were to pick out a couple of specific issues that relate to women's rights, um, I think women's leadership is, is incredibly important, you know, sort of looking at in every country, are women sort of having full opportunity to be at the, at the tables where decisions are really being made. And, and, you know, we should see more national leaders who are women. Um, Guterres is not in a great position to push that message because of his own <laughs> problems, uh, having been uh, appointed to the job instead of uh, a bunch of women candidates. But um, but I'd like to see him push that anyway. Sexual and reproductive health, abortion, um, he's got to do better on that. He can't keep dodging that issue. And then the, the last thing I'll highlight is, um, Nick, you've mentioned the role of women in peace processes at Security Council Resolution 1325. This is an obsession of, of ours and one where the UN keeps letting people down. I was, I was in Afghanistan actually a week and a half ago where these issues are absolutely critical and the UN is not doing enough by any means. So I want, I want to see a lot of progress on that in the next few years. 
you have just given me the idea for another topic for a podcast, which is women in the conflict resolution. We could actually have a really good discussion about that, I think. And Afghanistan, of course, is very much in the news at the moment. That's it from Inside Geneva for this week. My thanks to Heather Barr of Human Rights Watch, Nick Cumming-Bruce, journalist and contributor to the New York Times in Geneva, and our analyst, Daniel Warner. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.